Hello and welcome to episode number 95 of The Draft Analyst, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? I'm your host, Chris Tripodi, and joining me, as always, is Tony Pauline. So we are now officially through 11 weeks of the 2019 college football season. LSU survived Alabama last weekend behind another elite-level performance from quarterback Joe Burrow. Oklahoma had another close game against the Big 12 foe, but actually won this one because Iowa State went for the win on the road and missed the two-point conversion that would have given them that victory. And Minnesota topped Penn State in a battle of Big Ten unbeatens. We'll actually have more on that for you shortly. But first, Tony, your boy Francis Bernard has officially accepted his Senior Bowl invite, and we're going to get to watch him all week in mobile. You pumped? Yeah, and speak with him and interview him. And how great is that? I mean, literally, you know, if you were listening to our podcast over the summer, you would have become acquainted with Francis Bernard, Bernard Francis because no one, I can't, I still get his name mixed up. No one knew who he was. But when I watched that film over the summer and I watched Utah play and I watch and I, I tell everybody, go back and watch the bowl game, the Holiday Bowl, where, where Utah played Northwestern. And he is 30 yards down the field uh, covering uh, – receivers against Clayton Thorson. I mean, that is when I, was, I saw that guy, I said, wow. And the amazing thing is, is he was never graded by any scouts. None of the scouts had him on their preseason lists. And here it is now. He's, he's had a great season. He stands out every week. He's not just a good athlete. He's an instinctive football player, making plays in pursuit against the run, making plays in space, making plays in coverage. And now we're going to get to see all of that during three days of senior ball practice. I think it's fantastic and good for him. Good for him. I, I think, you know, I, I graded him as a, a last day pick coming into the season. Uh, I think three days of practice at the senior ball, he will have solidified himself as a second day pick. Yeah. And the senior ball is definitely a good situation for a player like him as well. So certainly we expect him to go down and, and show out and, show scouts really what they were missing out on by not grading him coming into the season and not taking the limited film he put on tape, you know, obviously behind Cody Barton and some of the talented linebackers at Utah. But now everybody knows the name Francis Bernard. Absolutely. And like I said, I mean, if you go back and listen to our podcast in, uh, in August, I said he is this year's version of Sione Takitaki. And Sione Takitaki was a guy who, was not graded coming into the 2018 season, had a terrific 2018 season, uh, campaign, uh, actually went to the Shrine game first, did well at the Shrine game, and then was able to uh, double up uh, at the Senior Bowl and ended up as, what, the third-round pick of the uh, Cleveland Browns. I, I think with uh, Bernard, it's a little bit different because people see, uh, you know, what he can be at the next level. He's a little bit further advanced than Taki Taki, but it's the same sort of situation. Absolutely. And I mentioned Penn State and Minnesota in the intro. This game was, I don't want to say domination by the Gophers, but pure control of the game. 31-26 win was not as close as the score implied. Now, when we were watching this game heading in, we were specifically looking out for the Minnesota wide receivers against Tariq Castro-Fields and the Nittany Lions secondary, which this matchup was a resounding win for Minnesota. Rashad Bateman, who is not eligible for the draft in 2020, just a true sophomore, but he went over 200 receiving yards on seven catches. Tyler Johnson, seven catches for 104 yards and a touchdown. Chris Altman-Bell added three receptions for 31 yards and a score. Since we mentioned Altman-Bell several weeks ago before the Maryland game, he's had two of his most productive games, took a screen pass 21 yards to the house in this one, actually stiff-armed Castro Fields to the ground in the process. Johnson is a guy with strength, concentration, 
hands. He put all those on display on his one-handed catch over the shoulder. Then he broke a weak tackle attempt to get to the end zone on his touchdown, which was also an impressive play. Continues to look smooth and run crisp routes, just not the athlete that Altman Bell or Bateman is. Yeah, you know, this is a terrific game to watch. I mean, first of all, I thought it was a great weekend of college football, and this really set the tone. Like you said, it wasn't close, but Penn State was right there at the end. First of all, the Minnesota offensive line kind of set the tone. I'll get into that in a second. But the And their defense did an outstanding job. Antoine Winfield is really hitting it out. Of, Antoine Winfield Jr., I should say, is really having a, a terrific uh, season, as are two of their seniors. But, I mean, the, the, the Minnesota receivers continue – to impress. Uh, Tyler Johnson is just a terrific route runner. I don't think he's going to go very high in the draft. I don't think he's going to be a second day pick because I don't think he's going to run very fast, but he's a sure-handed guy who's very reliable, knows how to get open, knows how to separate. We've talked about on this podcast in the past, some of the uh, bigger receivers, guys like Michael Pittman, who have big games and they just physically beat down opponents, but they're going to struggle at the next level because they can't separate. Tyler Johnson can separate. And he, he comes free. He, he plays smart football, uses the sidelines well, excellent body control. I mean, maybe if he runs in the four fours, I could see him hopping into the second day of the draft. Regardless, I think he's going to be a very good number three and number four receiver. You mentioned Rashad Bateman, who's not even draft eligible. Chris Altman Bell, I mean, he's a big play receiver. He's just got to really step up the production. But then again, when you got receivers like Rashad Bateman and Tyler Johnson there gobbling up 14 receptions a game for over 300 yards, as they did, you know, Altman Bell's only going to get to see the ball so many times. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to blame Altman Bell for the lack of production. He was more productive last year uh, when Bateman wasn't quite as big of a part of the offense. But I'm glad you mentioned Antoine Winfield Jr. Because this guy coming into the season was not on that many radars. And now, I mean, he's leading the nation in interceptions, has the ball skills. You saw it on the first drive, goes up in the air to end up grabbing the interception. He also lined up over the slot receiver. He's able to cover tight ends. He's even showing out in defending the run. He's a solid tackler. He's capable of really just in tight quarters, taking guys down right away, not getting carried, not getting dragged for a couple yards. So he's a really impressive guy. Obviously, the pedigree is there with him, the NFL bloodlines from his father, Antoine Winfield. So when you look at that kind of player who can make an impact in both the run and the pass games and also cover the slot, this is a guy that's going to be in demand come draft day. Yeah, remember, he played four games last year in 2018, played four games uh, the prior year in 2017 because of injury. So he hasn't really played a lot of football the prior two seasons. But as you said, the bloodlines are there. And, you know, he is a complete player, even though he's still listed as a redshirt sophomore. Uh, You know, excellent ball skills, like his dad, very competitive, like his dad, terrific instincts, like his dad. Uh, So he's got it going on. He's got the ability to be the complete package. Uh, one of their underrated seniors, Carter Coughlin, who was also invited to the Senior Bowl, who's having an outstanding uh, season, had uh, eight tackles, one sack, and three tackles for loss. And uh, again, you know, another guy, you know, we see from P.J. Fleck, guys play over their heads, guys overachieve. Uh, we saw Blake Cashman last year really come out of nowhere to develop into an outstanding player, selected in the fifth round of the draft by the New York Jets. Hands down is, is the best rookie uh, on the Jets roster right now, the most productive rookie. And you're seeing it a lot from these guys. You're seeing Antoine Winfield, who hasn't played much football the past two years, stepping in like he hasn't missed a beat. Carter Coughlin, who really was, wasn't a, a name to be known coming into the year, now he's going to the Senior Bowl. I also like their offensive line uh, play. If you uh, follow me at the Pro Football Network College Game Day blog, 
I mentioned Connor Olson, the offensive lineman, a lot. Played center. He played guard. You, you look at the uh, Penn State defensive line. Robert Windsor was hold, held to just four tackles. Yetar Grossmatos, two tackles, no sacks, no tackles for loss. Penn State as a team had one sack the entire game. Uh, so I think that Minnesota offensive line, led by Connor Olson, uh, someone we talked about over the summer during our Minnesota preview, I graded him as a fourth-round selection at the time. Uh, they did a terrific job helping, uh, helping Minnesota to that victory and helping them stay undefeated. What's really impressive to me when you watch Olsen is he will play center one play and he will move to guard the next play. Then he will move right back to center. After that, you really don't see teams switch up their offensive line like that. And Minnesota has a few other guys that they use kind of as movable pieces along that line. But, you know, usually you would see a guy, if he's capable of playing multiple positions, he'll play left guard on one drive. He'll play center on the next drive. But Olsen will play both positions on back-to-back plays and keep going back and forth. And to be able to remain consistent as he does while doing that is really a testament to his ability. And if you don't know that, it's tough to find the guy in the offensive line because you're saying, where the hell is 64? He was playing center last play. You know, why did he move to guard? But uh, again, I think it's not only a testament to him, but to P.J. Fleck. You know, I've uh, said a couple of times over pro football networking, question and answer segments and things like that. Matt Rule is going to be a Baylor is going to be one of the hottest coaching candidates once once the season's over. P.J. Fleck, when he was at uh, Western Michigan, when they had that undefeated season, he was getting some talk in NFL circles. I expect that to heat up, especially, you know, if Minnesota can really can finish out the deal. If they can finish out and win the Big Ten, I think P.J. Fleck is going to get a lot of uh, next-level consideration uh, once the season's over. P.J. Fleck or Lincoln Riley, if you had to choose, Tony? Wow. You know, that's funny because that is a question that I was asked. And the uh, question and answer segment at the Pro Football Network this week, you know, I, I think Rick Lincoln Riley is going to have the edge. Lincoln Riley is going to have the edge because everybody wants that offensive coordinator that is that quarterback guru, that quarterback specialist. And that's what Lincoln Riley is. So I think Lincoln Riley is going to get the edge because of that. But, you know, I, I mean, my own personal point of view, I like P.J. Fleck because it's an entire team. I mean, you know, Oklahoma is a quarterback-oriented, offensive passing game-oriented team. Where you look at Minnesota, uh, and, and Oklahoma has stars. I mean, you know, okay, Antoine Winfield Jr., maybe. But this Minnesota team, we're not talking about any stars as we are the way we were with Oklahoma, with Baker Mayfield, Kyler Murray, now Jalen Hurts. So I think from an overall team point of view, uh, you know, I like P.J. Fleck. The question is, is how do next level players react, you know, or respond to a guy like P.J. Fleck? Now, enough about Minnesota here. We will head to Wake Forest. And in this game, unfortunately, the Demon Deacons lost more than just the matchup against Virginia Tech. Breakout wide receiver Sage Surratt is undergoing season-ending surgery for an undisclosed injury left in the fourth quarter of this game after racking up four catches for 53 yards and two touchdowns. Scotty Washington was already hurt, so they were down a couple of receivers by the end of that game, which really didn't help Jamie Newman in this one. He did kind of struggle, 16 for 35, 238 yards, two touchdowns, two interceptions. Obviously, it had been an excellent season for Newman coming into this game. He's a guy, more of a distributor, the point guard type. He's going to get the ball to his playmakers. And in those cases, when you have a quarterback like that, they really need to have their top weapons healthy. Granted, he had Surratt for most of this game. Kendall Hinton played really well. I think he had 160 yards receiving. Uh, But what did you see from Newman in this game? 
Well, I, I think number one, Virginia Tech played a good game, and you're right, he did struggle, which is a shame because it really takes the shine off of this weekend's game, Wake Forest and Clemson. Uh, I, I mean, hopefully it's just a bump in the road for Jamie Newman because there are a lot of people at the next level who are very excited about him, and now he has to be able to rebound from adversity with the fact that his big play receiver, Sage Surratt, who I'm told was going to return uh, to Wake Forest even before the injury, now that he doesn't have him for the rest of the season. Now we'll see what Jamie Newman is made of. I like him. I think he's a resilient guy. He's very accurate. He gets it between the ears. He does a great job running that uh, Wake Forest offense. It's going to be a different ball of wax against Clemson, especially with his big play receiver out. You know, I, I think Virginia Tech was able to exploit them. I, I think they had to really change their game plan when Surratt was playing, you know, not at full health. Uh, Kendall Hinton did step up, like you said, 162 yards receiving with eight receptions. Um, you know, let's hope it's just a bump in the road for Jamie Newman, but it was a pretty significant bump for him. Yeah, and I mean, in this case, it was mostly that he just struggled with the relentless pressure that Virginia Tech was bringing at him. And a lot of that, too, if you don't have your top guys as safety valves, as guys that you can rely on to know they're going to be in a certain place and you get that ball out, it's going to make it tough. I mean, there was one play, the interception he threw where a defensive lineman picked him off. The lineman saw everybody else getting there, just peeled back, and Jamie Newman just never saw him. So he was kind of shell-shocked a bit in this one. Obviously doesn't bode well for him heading into Clemson. But as you said, if he can show that mental toughness and he can bounce back, that's going to be a great sign for next level decision makers. And he could turn this negative performance against the Hokies potentially into a positive. Yeah, and the Hokies took uh, Jack Frenthal out, his uh, tight end, who's really developing into a terrific player uh, and is not just a big play threat, but a very reliable pair of hands. They were able to take him out of the game. So it was a tough game for Newman, but you got to give the Hokies credit as well because, you know, they haven't had a, a great season. They've struggled at times, but they came to play and they absolutely stepped their game up. Someone who also stepped their game up, at least from when we watched him last against Rhode Island several weeks ago, was Caleb Farley, the cornerback for Virginia Tech. Very physical on the outside. He wasn't the reason that Surratt ended up scoring twice and Kendall Hinton caught eight balls for 162 yards. I was impressed with what I saw from Farley this week. What did you think, Tony? You know, Farley, as I said in the beginning of the season, He's got excellent size. He flashes ball skills. He looks like a good athlete, but he needs to start putting the pieces together. And that's what he looks like he's doing. I mean, the teams are not throwing in his direction on purpose for a reason, but when they do, he's up to the task. He's a physical guy. He's got a tremendous amount of upside. I like his development. Like you said, I think he's made major improvements from when we spoke about him uh, against Rhode Island, a Division I AA school, who has some good receivers. But I think you can see a straight line of progress in Farley's game, and I think this was a good showing for him. Absolutely. And we'll head west now to the Pac-12, where Washington beat Oregon State 19-7. to We were watching Beavers wide receiver Isaiah Hodgins and Huskies cornerback Keith Taylor. Taylor mostly stuck to the left side. I didn't see Hodgins targeted against Taylor in this one. I don't know if you did, Tony. He only had four catches for 33 yards overall. Really struggled to get free and break open against this Washington defense, despite the fact that he is a good route runner. The Huskies in the end were just too much for Oregon State. Yeah, I, and it doesn't surprise me because he shows limited quickness in his game. And, I, you know, he's a big guy who catches the ball very well. But as I've said, my concerns about him, and I, they've been echoed throughout the scouting community, is – the inability to get off the line, 
the inability to separate from opponents, although he's a better-than-average route runner for a guy whose size and really no speed in this game. Four receptions for 33 yards, an average of 8.3 yards per catch against what is a very quick, a very explosive, a very fast Washington defense. Those players in the back second, their linebackers are smaller guys who fly around the football. Their safeties are smaller guys who fly around the football. Taylor's got excellent size, uh, but this this is a speed defense uh, at Washington, and Hodgkins just did not react well, did, did not have a good game against them. Should we also mention Trevin Bradford, uh, he, uh, their other receiver. He caught two passes for 16 yards. He was a guy who coming into the season – was graded as a potential late-round pick by NFL scouts. He's been injured all year. I believe he's played in like three or four games this season. He's going to shut it down, and he's going to return next year as a redshirt senior. So Bradford, who uh, was graded as as a potential late-round pick by scouts coming into the year, he's done for the season. We'll see him back in an Oregon State uniform next year. Now, for our last Week 11 review, we're going to look at a pair of offensive tackles from the Big 12, contrasting styles here between West Virginia's Colton McKivitz and Texas Tech's Terrence Steele. This game was a route from the start, ended up 38-17 Red Raiders. And from what I could see here, the Red Raiders won the game, but the Mountaineer was the better offensive lineman in Colton McKivitz. Impressive patience and pass protection. Good athlete, slides his feet well, both when engaged in blocks and when protecting the edge. Great hand usage. Did get beaten inside a few times. Not sure if that's him over-protecting the edge or what it is, but something to clean up for him in his game. Steele, though, not the same level of athlete as McKivitz. Struggles in motion, bends at the waist and overextends at times, but he's very powerful. Hard to shed blocks once he gets control of you. Has very strong hands. Drove multiple West Virginia defenders straight into the ground. Several pancake blocks in this game. Tony, what did you see from this duo? Well, it was a tough game to watch, as you said, because it was a blowout from the get-go. But, you know, as bad as West Virginia played, they did not allow a sack. And McKivitz, you know, as far as an athlete's concerned, we may have a bit of a disagreement there, but I'll say this. He uses all his tools to their best. I mean, he's a smart, tough guy who knows how to apply the tools that he has fundamentally sound like to see him bend his knees a little bit more you know but you know what you're getting from the guy and you're always getting the guy's best where steel you know like you said I, I mean he's off balance he's a big clumsy type of guy uh, you know I, I i could see mckivitz from what i saw against texas tech and what i've really saw the past two years from him i could see him starting on sunday if not at right tackle maybe guard where i think steel is a, a guy who was Graded as a top 60 pick by scouts, but I think he's more of a practice squad type guy, a projection at right tackle down the road. Now we've got some news on this week's show. Last week, I actually emailed Tony about our intro to the podcast, asking if he wanted to talk about the Jets after they lost to the Dolphins. He said that we needed a break from the Jets, which actually wasn't a typo, but it does segue nicely here, considering lots of things. First, today's news that Christopher Johnson announced that Adam Gase not only wouldn't be fired this year, but he would also be back in 2020. On top of that, we also have the Kalechi Osameli situation. Some quick background on that one. He was traded to the Jets from Oakland in March, hurt his shoulder early in training camp in August, re-injured that shoulder late in September in the loss of the Patriots. The Jets doctors thought he could delay surgery, play through it because it was a pre-existing injury. Osameli, on the other hand, said he needed to get it taken care of immediately so that he could be ready and prepared for the 2020 season. 
the Jets had been fining him the maximum amount they were allowed weekly. I think it was around $600,000. He got unauthorized surgery. So after that, the Jets cut him. He has now filed a grievance through the NFLPA. Where does this whole situation stand, Tony? It's not a good look for the Jets. And we're going to get into the next one later on. But, you know, I was told that Asimeli actually had an injury before he got to the Jets, but he passed the Jets physical. And, you know, as injuries sometimes do, it just became worse. And it came to the point where he felt he couldn't play with it. And he got multiple uh, opinions that said, yeah, he needed surgery. And when the surgery was done, it was actually found that the situation was worse when they went in there than what they thought, which often happens. Don't take it from me, but that's exactly what happened with my knee surgery. When I came out of my knee surgery, which we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, granted, I'm not Asimeli playing offensive guard in the NFL, but the doctor said when I got in there, it was a lot worse than what I saw in the MRI. So this happens all the time. So the Jets, you know, knew there was a bit of a shoulder issue. He passed the physical. He played. He hurt his shoulder even more, which is it happens all the time. And then he wanted to get it fixed. Now, you, you know, uh, if you're on the Jets side, you're saying, well, this guy just wanted to have the surgery to get his shoulder fixed because they knew he was going to be a free agent. He wants to be ready for the 2020 season. That's all well and good. But, you know, you just don't cut a player uh, who feels he needs surgery, uh, you know, or wants to get the, his shoulder uh, repaired when you want to put him on the field. Uh, you know, in this day and age of player protection, uh, it, it was just, it's not a good look for the New York Jets. Uh, and it's something that is going to come up time and time again with free agents that want to sign for him, especially when you couple in the Luke Falk situation. Yeah. And speaking of that Luke Falk situation, he has also filed a grievance of his own against the Jets. Now, Luke Falk needs hip surgery. He was never even listed on the injury report during his time as the Jets starting quarterback. It's unclear really when he was hurt, but obviously he feels it was when he was with the Jets. Obviously, Sam Darnold got cleared. Then they went ahead and cut them, which kind of an interesting move when you think about he was their starting quarterback. And yes, he played very poorly, but then you don't demote him to backup. You just straight up cut him. So that kind of lends some credence here. Did the Jets know something was going on and they just said, you know what, we're just going to get out of Luke Falk right now. But in the end, this is just more mess in what is already a messy season for the Jets. Tony, what do you know about Falk's situation? Falk hurt his hip during the preseason. And then he basically finished off his hip in that game against the Eagles when he was getting hammered. He wasn't playing well, but the offensive line was doing him no favors. And it was during that uh, game against the Eagles where he tore the labrum in his hip uh, and he was done for the season. Now, what I'm, I was told was he got hurt and the Jets just cut him. They didn't do a physical. Uh, they refused to look at the second, third opinions uh, that he needed surgery. Uh, I'm told that Falk and his people gave the Jets, I believe it's a 24-day window, to come to an injury settlement with Falk. And when they didn't do that, that's when the grievance was filed. So, I, I mean, Falk got hurt while he was a New York Jet. I was told that it was during that uh, – that game against the Eagles where he tore the, the, the uh, labrum in his hip uh, and the Jets didn't, you know, want to come to bat and come to an injury settlement. And what's going to happen is it's twofold. Number one, the Jets are very likely going to lose the injury grievance and they're probably going to end up paying more uh, during the grievance than the, what they would have paid if they had come to an injury settlement. And again, you know, if it's just the Asimeli situation, 
you say, okay, eyebrows are raised, let's just watch out. If it's just the fog situation, again, eyebrows are raised, we'll just ask some questions. The two together is like a lethal Molotov cocktail. It's, it's an unforced error. I talk to people who have nothing to do with Falk and Asimeli, and they told me, like, look, I've got free agents. If the Jets have any interest in these free agents, before we even talk contract, I'm going to want to know specific particulars as to what happened with Kaleshi Osimeli and Luke Falk. Why they cut these guys? Why they didn't come to injury center? If you're an agent, you're not going to put your player in a situation like that. So it's it's not a good look for the Jets. I think it's an unforced error. You know, you, you don't want to be throwing money out the window. But I think in the case of both players, it wasn't going to cost them a whole heck of a lot to pay these guys. But in the end, it could cost them a lot for not paying the players. And two, this is a team that in the past few seasons has struggled to attract players in free agency. I mean, you look at the Anthony Barr situation, agrees to sign with the Jets, has a change of heart. Maybe that's not on the Jets, but they had a lot of money last offseason and they had a lot of trouble spending it. In the end, they were almost forced to pay Le'Veon Bell because they needed to use the money. And obviously there weren't that many other suitors for Le'Veon Bell, but this is a team that already had trouble bringing in players that weren't just looking to steal money. And we're looking at Tremaine Johnson when we say that. He's likely a goner in this offseason, got a massive contract from the Jets several years ago, just never panned out. Those are the kind of players that you're going to get if you continue to have these situations where you just look bad as a franchise, you look inept, and you look like you don't care about players. And if you're a talented enough free agent, you know that you can go to an organization that doesn't treat you like this. And remember... You know, the Tremaine Johnson signing came about because they couldn't sign Kirk Cousins. And and they were offering Kirk Cousins all kinds of money. Now, some people will say, well, we dodged the bullet with that one because we didn't sign Kirk Cousins. We moved up and and the Jets got Sam Darnold. I can understand that argument. But, but, you know, don't forget about that. It's just unforced errors. And now, granted, next March we'll have to to, uh, see what happens. But now, you know, Chris Johnson remaining so steadfast that, Adam Gase is going to be his coach next season, uh, which I, I still think there's room for uh, wiggle room in that one. But, but still, it's just like a lot of unnecessary things that the Jets bring down on themselves. Yeah, it's just, you know, overall not a good look. Obviously, they can backtrack on Gase just because you say you're going to keep somebody. Doesn't mean you have to. If he completely railroads the rest of the season and Sam Darnold shows no growth, they would be absolutely foolish to keep him around. There is something certainly to be said for continuity, maintaining the same schemes, not switching coaches on a young quarterback all the time. But in this case, it could easily be addition by subtraction, even with all that new stuff coming in next year, if it comes down to that. Well, a couple things, you know, you hired Joe Douglas as your general manager. You got to give the guy a ton of money uh, uh, to come to the Jets because there was talk that, you know, once Houston fired uh, Brian Ganey, he may be going there. You bring Joe Douglas in and then the owner comes out and says, we're keeping, uh, uh, we're keeping Adam Gase, you know, the end of this year and yes, next year. Well, what does that say about Joe Douglas? What kind of control does he have? I mean, you just signed the guy as a general manager, gave him all his money. And there's belief out there that one of the reasons why they're keeping Adam Gase is because Sam Darnold likes him so much, because Sam Darnold has given him a lot of backing. Number one, Sam Darnold has really not shown that much progress this year at all. I mean, I was at the game on Sunday, and he's missing a lot of passes that he made last year. 
And last time I checked, you know, Baker Mayfield was one of the main voices for the Cleveland Browns to elevate Freddie Kitchens as their head coach. That hasn't worked out too well. Now I'll get to our Week 12 previews in just a moment here. But before we do, please support the Draft Analysts by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or any of the big podcast platforms. You can also find us at Believe.com. Leave us a rating and a review. If you have any questions you want answered on the show, tweet us at Chris Tripodi, at Tony Pauline, and at Believe Podcast to get in touch. Now, we recently watched Florida in the past couple of weeks, specifically Jonathan Grenard and Jabari Zuniga against the stud offensive tackles of Georgia. Zuniga is still hurt. Both of them came into that game nursing ankle injuries. Zuniga missed the Vanderbilt game, hopes to play against Missouri, but he's uncertain. Grenard, though, will definitely be out there, and he could face Tigers tackle Yasir Durant often. Durant is a massive player, 6'5", 335 pounds, blocks with a nasty attitude, solid athlete for that size as well. Grenard is a guy who not only rushes the passer, he also plays the run well. So it'll be interesting to see how he fares against Durant in both aspects of the game, giving up 80 pounds or so. You know, first of all, you got to hope that Grenard is back to full health because I know he's been struggling with, with that ankle injury. And, and Zuniga's had uh, so, some issues as well. Uh, Durant is a big, massive, relatively athletic tackle. I mean, he moves well around the field. He shows ability uh, at left tackle for Missouri, although I agree. I think he's more of a right tackle uh, at the next level. Uh, he's got to improve his balance. He plays with a nasty streak. There are some people who have mentioned some character issues about him, or maybe they just don't like his personality. He's got a great amount of upside, and this is going to be one of, one of his toughest tests of the season because especially in Grenard, the guy is a pure edge rusher, uh, and he's got to be able to show that he can stay on his feet, that he can cover some area off the edge, and that he can basically stay on balance or he's going to get destroyed from Grenard, who's a terrific edge rusher, but also has an inside move. I'm sure we're going to see Durant in one of the uh, postseason games. I don't know if he's been invited to the Senior Bowl yet. I haven't looked at the list. If he has already been, I apologize for that in advance. Uh, but I, I, we'll see him in the uh, in the postseason if he's healthy. He's got a great amount of upside. I mean, if, if this guy can play up to his potential, uh, I think he's got uh, he can be a starter on Sunday. Now, we've talked often on this show about Michigan State's very good run defense, ranked 16th in the nation. I think it was in the top five when we last talked about it. But a big part of that run defense is defensive tackles Raquan Williams and Naquan Jones. They have an interesting challenge this week against the interior offensive line of Michigan that we've also talked about on the show. Cesar Ruiz is one of the nation's top centers, great movement skills. On each side of him, you have Ben Bredesen and Michael Onwenu at the guard positions. Very powerful blockers alongside Ruiz. The Wolverines running game really has been rolling well as of late. They racked up over 300 yards on the ground against Notre Dame. So this is a battle to watch in the trenches. Yeah, absolutely. And basically, Michigan goes as their offensive line goes. And one of the reasons for the resurgence of the team this year is because their offensive line pulled it together. Bredesen is well-liked in the scouting community, as is Cesar Ruiz. Uh, Teams think that Bredesen you're looking at a third round pick, maybe a second round selection. I have more of a third rounder. He's going to be at the senior ball. Teams like his nastiness. Teams like the fact that uh, he plays with uh, blocks with terrific fundamentals. Cesar Ruiz is talked about in some circles in the scouting community as the number one center 
in the nation. Yes, some scouts like him better than Tyler Biadez of Wisconsin. That remains to be seen. But, I mean, he's gotten better as the year's gone on. He had a terrific game against Notre Dame in those horrendous uh, circumstances. Strong at the point, but also good in motion. Also good on his feet getting out to the second level. He's going to go up against the uh, Michigan State duo, who I think have been relatively disappointing this year. Raekwon Williams has played well, but not as well as I thought uh, he should. I don't think he's met expectations. He, he shows ability on occasion. He flashes skill rather than showing uh, consistency in his game. Naquan Jones was graded as a potential fourth-round pick by some scouts who grade juniors coming into the year. I think he's got like 10 tackles for the year. He's been nothing this year. He really has been washed out of the plays. It is not even starting. His season has been a massive disappointment. You know, you mentioned Michael and Wenu uh, when you were talking about this game. He's a guy that I absolutely love. I mean, he is a massive guy. We spoke about him in our preview. He's a guy who's 350 pounds, but he moves like a dancing bear on the field. He's powerful, but he's also quick. That's going to be a heck of a matchup. And if things go the way they've been going, I think you're going to see the Wolverines uh, trio on the inside just blow the uh, Michigan State kids out of the water. Now, our final preview is a matchup that hopefully we get to see this weekend in the Big 12. We're going to go back to the well with the Texas Tech Red Raiders, where wide receiver TJ Vasher could face off against TCU cornerback Jeff Gladney. Vasher, 37 catches this year for 473 yards and three touchdowns. Missed last week's game due to suspension. He's uncertain this week. He's not guaranteed to the return. I think it was a team disciplinary type of thing. It was supposed to be one game, but this one is actually going to go down to kickoff. But if he plays, the six foot six, 210-pound receiver will get a good challenge against one of the top two against one of the top two cornerbacks in the Big 12 conference. Gladney, six foot, 183, good size. Obviously gives up about five to six inches here in this matchup, but he's a physical player, a technically sound corner who limits his mistakes, coming off a pretty impressive performance against Baylor's Denzel Mims, who also had several inches on Gladney. Really good game last week if you watched any of that matchup between the two of them. Mims did have two touchdowns in overtime. One of them was not against Gladney. I couldn't tell if the other one was, but either way, Hopefully Basher plays in this game so we get to see him go up against Gladney and see if Gladney can put two consecutive weeks together against good, big receivers. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of scouts who really like Gladney. They think he's a second-day pick. A uh, little bit shorter, as you mentioned, about goes about five foot ten, but he's fast, and he's got some decent ball skills. Now, this game is important uh, to mention because I, I've been reporting a couple times uh, at the Pro Football Network. The word I'm getting is that T.J. Vasher is leaning heavily towards entering the draft. And if he doesn't play this week, if it's another situation where he's, he's put on the sidelines because of suspension, I think he's definitely out the door. He was leaning that way to begin with. If it's a situation where there's something going on with him and the coaching staff and you know he's going to struggle to see playing time from here on out, I, I think you can basically pencil in T.J. Vasher as one of the many underclassmen uh, receivers that we'll see who are, are going to be available in the uh, 2020 NFL draft. Taller guy, like you said, pencil thin, uh, decent route runner, shows the ability to get separation, has got better quickness than some of the other guys. We mentioned the, the Michael Pittmans of the world, the second time I've mentioned him in this uh, podcast, but he's also thinner, Vasher. Vasher only goes about 200 pounds, where Pittman's 220 pounds, so it's a little bit easier for him to have better quickness, um, but he's got a, a frail body. Uh, but he's not, he's not afraid to go over the middle and get up and make the catch. Let's see what happens. As you mentioned, well, hopefully he plays. 
if he doesn't play and he stays on suspension, I, I think it's basically game over and he's definitely going to enter the draft. Yeah, I mean, if we don't see Basher this week, it would be truly shocking if he went back. This was not supposed to be a situation where he was going to miss multiple games. We still don't know exactly what's going on, violation of team rules, whatever you may have it. But if he's going to miss a second game here, I, I agree with you completely that there is almost no chance that we will see him back at Texas Tech, especially if he was already leaning that way, as you'd been hearing. Yeah, and, and Texas Tech uh, basically is, has almost got to win out uh, to make a postseason bowl game. Uh, TCU is basically on the fringe of, of making a bowl game, so they're going to want to win. And the next three games for Texas Tech are TCU this Saturday, which we mentioned, Kansas State, who's a real good team in the Big 12. They beat Oklahoma. Texas, who's a real good team. So, you know, uh, there's not a whole lot of season left for Texas Tech. It doesn't look like. Uh, so I, I think, it, like you said, hard-pressed to think Vasher uh, comes back to college uh, if the suspension remains, especially since there can be no postseason. And one of the more important aspects of the postseason is not just playing in the game, but you get an extra month of practices. You get all those extra practices uh, through the month of December. And that's it for the 95th episode of The Draft Analyst, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on any of the major podcast platforms and leave us a rating and a review. And feel free to ask us questions on Twitter that we'd be happy to answer on the show. As alluded to numerous times during this show, all of Tony's work can be found over at profootballnetwork.com. So visit the site, check out some of the game previews over the next couple of days, always having the live blog on Saturday where not only is there game breakdowns, there's also information on guys like TJ Vasher or anybody else and what they may be thinking about when it comes to the draft and also weekly risers and sliders, Tony's classic column to come early next week as well. For Tony Pauline, this is Chris Tripodi. See you next week.